0: Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of the year. One of my resolutions for 2022 is to upload more podcast episodes, which in the past was greatly impeded by me being so anal about pursuing the most technically best sounding and manicured podcast. Today, I'm trying something different, very conversational, fewer cuts. So more ums and coughs uh, with a very special guest who has had tremendous influence on my life and dozens upon hundreds of my peers. For many of my listeners, this episode might be rather esoteric. For fellow TOPS program alumni, if you're a new listener, welcome. You may find this a pleasant and informative trip down memory lane. Michael McMaster is the former program head of the TOPS program, a public high school math and science program at Mark Renaud Collegiate in Toronto. Michael, which I'm still getting used to calling him as he used to be my calculus teacher, actually just retired from teaching last year in 2021. He has since moved to Vancouver Island and graciously accepted my invitation to have a virtual podcast chat about his career in retrospect, and of course, the TOPS program, its philosophy, its history, Max fight with the board to expand the program, and later, pedagogy, public versus private schooling, a lot. So much so, in fact, this will be the first multi-part series of the podcast. I hope this episode makes all listeners, program alumni or not, Think deeply about the importance of quality education. Please enjoy. Okay, Um, I don't know what to address you as because it's it's always been Mister. You can address me as Michael. As Michael, oh my God, you
1: might find that a bit weird. I do find it weird, but.
0: I don't find it weird. Okay, uh, Michael. Michael, it is. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining me today, setting up the headphones and everything. Sorry to hear about the the snow that you try to distance yourself from. Uh, so you're now recently retired and living happily in uh, on Vancouver Island, specifically in Courtney, <laughs> which is a small town with uh, one of my classmates. Would you mind? doing a quick run through of your career leading up to your decision to start teaching and and starting the the tops program um actually maybe before that could you give a quick rundown of your description of the tops program
1: well i think i always thought of the tops program like the other specialty programs that were in the TDSB, as an option for students of similar ilk to some extent in terms of for students who like math and science, it's a place to go where normally school, if it's just this generic whatever, you know, that works for some people. It doesn't work for everybody. And I'm not saying that TOPS worked for everybody. But people had to choose to come there um, in, in terms of go through the application process and all that other stuff. And I've always thought that specialty programs, um, whether it be TOPS or something else, if it helps a kid want to go to school because it, there's a, a focus on something that interests them, I think that's a really good thing because I think motivation and is can be really hard to come by for a lot of people. And, you know, I think our program, TOPS, would have been terrible for someone who was an arts student who wanted to go to Etobicoke School of the Arts. And at the same time, um, a whole bunch of your colleagues would have been miserable if they had to go to an arts program. And um, the one thing that I kept noticing over the years was um, on Parents' Night, I would often get parents who said that their kids hated middle school because it basically, it it wasn't cool to be smart and to be interested in science and or math. And so they, they just loathed going to school. And if people are unhappy because they're going to school, something's wrong. And what we discovered was that, uh, like in grade nine, after Pinecrest, later that year when I met with parents, kids were like thrilled to go to school. They were happy again. And I thought that was one of the biggest achievements that we could do. Um, Because, you know, even though it's a cliche, learning is a lifelong process. And you want to, I think if you can stay, uh, find wonder in things for your entire life, that's going to, that, that enriches your life. And so if, if we could sort of boost that for people, I thought that's sort of, that was a positive thing. I don't know if I'm answering your, answering your
0: question. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you, you guys did a great job at exactly that. Um, well, for, for some kids, for me at least, I, even today, I think I would attribute a lot of my personal interest in learning in, um, in TOPS. Uh, but in, in particular, what uh, TOPS is as, a, as an experience for from the student's perspective is a normal public uh, high school education in an enrichment program uh, with 60 other kids. Um, who all had to take a test and eventually had to go through an interview to to get in right
1: well that um that was a relatively late phenomena um, at first we didn't do that we we had some other things that um, that were these rubrics that your teachers your grade eight teachers could fill out that it was it took longer for them to write their name and that information on the form than it would be to fill out the form and it was for them to indicate your what they thought your interests were in, uh, in various topics. That thing was invaluable because there was a spot at the end where teachers could write comments if they wished to do so. And sometimes we would get something like, this kid has been in the country for 16 months. They, their acquiring of language has been phenomenal. But if you'd only been in the country for 16 months your profile might be pretty thin just because you wouldn't have had the opportunity to do all sorts of extracurriculars and you know there can be many many things and so a teacher could write down here this kid is really special and that would be really important for us but the tdsb wouldn't let us do that anymore and there was one year where after they said, well, you're not allowed to do these things. Probably 80% of the students submitted them anyway. Teachers filled them out, even though they didn't have to. Um, And we found that really meaningful. Now, later on, we did have a short interview that was being done by the guidance department. And that was pretty good, because sometimes a kid might apply because their parents really. And we didn't want someone to come if they didn't want to be in the program. And and when you guys are 12 years old or 13 years old and you're applying, you'll do what your parents want you to do. Mm-hmm. And so you'll do your best to apply. But sometimes it wasn't what you may have wanted to do. And uh, that's sort of what the interview was for, to try to suss that out.
0: And And – Sorry. How would you describe the uh, the goal with the selection criteria? Because when I was applying in 2009, uh, it seemed like this was a math and science uh, special program for kids that want to go into STEM-related fields. So maybe if they were already attuned or, um, or precocious in, in, in those uh, areas in middle school, then It'd be a place where they could explore that further, um, similar to how, if you were arts inclined, you could go to, as you said, the Etobicoke School of the Arts, you could go to uh, Earl Haig. What was the goal for well,
1: the Well, our exam was just a snapshot. Even though I hate standardized tests, it was the only thing that would be common to all of you that were applying, because you all came from different places, you had different backgrounds, different schools. And so just doing well on the test didn't mean that you were going to get in. There was one year where the person who had the absolute highest scores in the math and the science, et cetera, we didn't let them in um, because they did well on tests, Um, but they didn't seem to be well-rounded in other areas. And... um, like, our goal wasn't to teach you guys calculus in grade nine. Um, and even though if you look at your classmates when they came in, there was a pretty wide range of ability. There were kids who, you know, they went to Saturday math camp for years. Or they did Kumon or they did Olympia or, or whatever it was. They did those extracurricular programs Sometimes because their parents wanted them. Sometimes they did it for themselves. That was their extracurricular for some of them. And so you would expect them to do better on our test. Um, but just getting a high mark wasn't good enough. We really we really looked at the profile. We really looked at the English essay. Um, when you applied, we really looked at those teacher recommendation things. Um, we looked at anything that you would submit to us. And... Um, sometimes, like, you know, people could give us binders fill, filled with stuff in their profile. They'd had, they gave photocopies of every badge they ever earned from grade one. Well, you know, those things had mass, but they weren't really impressive. Um, having, a, like, I appreciate the effort, but those things weren't relevant in terms of um, stuff in the long run. I, like, we appreciated the effort that they put it, put into things because they cared and that's noticeable too. So our selection thing, like there'd be eight or nine of us in a room and we would take the day and we could look at all of the data, whether it's the test, it was, we co, we put in what your report card marks were, we, had rubrics that looked at your English exam, rubrics that looked at your profile, that looked for different things. And all of that went into a program that Mr. Van Bemmel wrote. And we could weight things in different ways, put it up on the screen. And so we might do a particular weighting where you could be first out the 500 kids that are applying. We might change the weightings and look at other things. And you could be number 250 at 500. And so, in one waiting, you were really strong and really stood out. In other waitings, you were part of the great unwashed. And so, uh, that's just interesting. And so, we would take some kids who might do well in one area, and then we'd switch it, and then we would take kids who are stronger in another area, in a different waiting, and we might do that four or five times. Certainly, there would be some kids who show up in multiple waitings and they had a pretty good chance of getting in. Mm. But another issue that we had is that when we were taking 60 people, um, we could have taken 150 because at some point, especially near the end, when we're trying to finish up the few spots that are there, you probably could make an argument that we're not smart enough to say that we're going to let this kid in and the next kid doesn't get in. It's within the margin of error. Yeah, like you can't do that. And so normally we would have these interesting S curves where uh, I'm going to do this in the air so you can take a look at what's going on. If we ranked the score versus the number, sideways, it would sort of, go down quite precipitously and then we would have a plateau and then it would drop off at the end. Mm -hmm. And so we would always be up and going into the shoulder of the students who are really strong in that one particular weighting. And so we would normally look to about 40 or 50 in any different sort. And uh, so what we would normally do is that we'd pick a whole bunch of people through the different sorts. And then we would have to weed a few people out, and that was that's when things would always get heated, um, and get tricky. And then you kind of sort of feel miserable because you know that you're denying a kid a chance, and they might be terrific. And and again, we're not our process wasn't perfect, but I bet you it was a lot more thorough than most other places. It would have been so easy just to take high scores on our exam. And that was it. That would have been the easiest way of doing it. But I don't think it would have been the, the most fair way of doing it. Right. Um, and so I was actually pretty proud of our process. The The one thing that changed over the years that I don't, i I can't explain it and I don't have a solution for it was like previous to your years, um, there was more diversity in the program as it went further and further. Like when we did our selections, we didn't know the name of the kid. We didn't know the name of the school. We knew their gender. So that was it. Hmm. Cause I always wanted it to be relatively balanced because otherwise it just gets too weird. Um, I went to engineering
0: well, school. I can attest to that.
1: Oh uh, yeah. So, and there was one year, where it worked out that it was really unbalanced and it was it was just like dysfunction for four years it was strange. Um but uh over the years, like when we would do after we've done our selection, we would look at the names and I don't like this is even though we were looking at so many different things and and all these different weightings, it would be Chinese, 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 like it And I don't know why. And I, because we really tried to. The only thing like what we didn't <laughs> have on screen is like Chinese de- descent, Korean descent. Like we didn't have anything like that because mm. but we never asked that, and I didn't think that was important. But over the years, it certainly became more and more students with a, with a Chinese background. Yeah,
0: um, and and tops probably isn't the first nor will it be the last um, to see, I guess, an influx of uh, a lot of, I guess, high-achieving or wanting to be high-achieving um, kids of Chinese background. I mean, the other way to go about it is to have affirmative action going in the other direction like, uh, like Harvard does, right? And a lot of other uh, liberal arts schools.
1: And I'm not... A... <laughs> it's funny because once many years ago, we had the president of Princeton come to our school Wow. and their dean, the, their dean of admissions, which like, what are they doing coming to a public school in like Toronto? I thought that was, and they showed us their new promotional video of what they were doing with their first year students. And it was all very slick because, you know, they have tons of money. So they had this like really professional video of, of the things that they do with their first year students. And so after it was over, I very jokingly, including in front of my principal and, and superintendent, I accused the, prin- the president of Princeton of stealing our ideas <laughs> because it looked exactly like Pinecrest. <laughs> like exactly. Like we were sitting around looking at each other with these weird eyes in terms of like it, it was really shocking um, how similar it was to our Pinecrest experience.
0: So when you say Pinecrest, you mean the first like retreat that yes, yeah, the one in grade nine,
1: right? And and that one, um, like that got started before I was involved. Except I would started being a teacher, and I went to some of the early ones, um, and uh, like that uh, that changed over time. But uh, uh, it was. Um, a marvelous experiment because what it ended up doing like again prior to your year we had like there's still usually even towards the end we would have students come from about 35 different middle schools elementary schools Mm -hmm. so there's quite a bit of diversity in terms of where people are coming from and so the purpose of pinecrest was to put all of you people in rooms or not in rooms or whatever so that you'll talk with one another. Like there were no real activities that were curriculum based because I think that would ruin it. And then over the years we learned to do all these like ridiculously stupid things that were just fun to get people to relax because it's, I always said, and I meant it, it's so hard for kids to leave their friends or the majority of them go to a new school could be far away where there's going to be long commutes and walk it like to, Go in and meet new people. That's really courageous to do that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And people underestimate that. And so Pinecrest was just um, a way to get people to relax in a way that so that they talk with one another. And it wasn't meant to replace friends, but to make new ones, because we never wanted people to leave their friends of where they came from. But it, it then becomes tricky for you as a student if you're, in tops, and then keeping contact with your old pals from your old school. There's just not enough hours in the day in order to do all of that. That becomes tricky. And so, like, there would be students who, in the first week, they hate it. Now, the first week of school is awful for anybody. You go in there, like, you're little pipsqueaks. You're like, you're walking around with a big target on your back because you're so obviously in grade nine. You're little. You don't know where the bathrooms are. Um, You you can barely work your your combination lock. You don't know anybody. Everybody's three meters tall. Um, It's tough. And after Pinecrest, like before Pinecrest, there'd be kids who go home and they would cry. They would cry to their parents. They would push, you know, they'd have their little PhD in parent manipulation. And they would be pushing their parents. I want to leave. I hate it. I want to go back to my old friends. I get that. After Pinecrest, people don't do that like after pinecrest you couldn't pay the money to leave and that was a that was a success
0: yeah pinecrest was definitely a revelation for me
1: and the biggest thing the best thing
0: was square dancing i'm telling you that was that- fun.
1: It was fun. It wasn't but fun at some, the
0: time. It was it was scary as hell. Uh, for, I know. For a 12-year-old to be uh, doing a couple's dance with another 12-year-old of the gender.
1: <laughs> I know. Um, but, and yeah, so the, it was kind of funny to see some of you with your abject looks of horror about what was going to transpire. Um, but then usually after about five to ten minutes, most of you have this ridiculous shit-eating grin on your face. And so it's like, oh, we win. (laughs) Uh, uh. Um, And then the next day, the tone changed um, in terms of the dynamics of the group after after square dancing. And that just came, that was a fluke thing to come into existence because we were going to do something and it fell through. And I asked the Pinecrest people, they mentioned something about square dancing. And I said, we'll call them up call these people up and have them see if they can come back. And they just, the, um, Doug and Heather who, who ran that, they're so busy. Like they're so busy that the fact that they actually had, um, a space available is crazy.
0: And then we had them come forever. I love that. So I'm guessing Pinecrest hasn't run in a while, eh? I don't think so. Um, I don't know exactly
1: what they've done. Um, I know that the year that I gave up my headship, um, I couldn't go—not because I didn't want to, but because there was some family event or something that I that I couldn't get out of.
0: Hmm. And um, Which year was that, by and, the way? The year that you gave up headship? Oh my god. Um.
1: 2018.
0: I see. I see. So pandemic I minus think two years.
1: It was before the pandemic. Um, but that may have been 2019. May have been Pine Crust of 2019.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So walking through, describing what uh, TOPS is. Uh, there's this admission process where we try to select for kids who want to be there, kids who are inclined. A lot of them ended up being Chinese, one reason or another. Um, we get in, and in the first week, we're thrown into this uh, three nights or was it two nights um, retreat? Three um, nights. Three night retreat in the woods, where we're made, among other things, uh, to uh, to square dance with uh, with each other. Um, So that's a quick bonding experience. And then throughout the rest of the four years, it's a whirlwind of, um, I guess, accelerated uh, math curriculums and uh, trips and um, culty activities that, including Tops Night, the end of year evening show that uh, we would put on for the outgoing seniors. Uh, It was a good time for me. Is there anything that you would add to the, the, the seminal TOPS experience? Because <laughs> I do eventually want to go into uh, your, your career and what, what motivated um, starting TOPS and then later the trajectory of TOPS now. And um, after that, I hope to talk about education access. But if we don't get to that, I don't mind a part two. <laughs> okay. Um, one thing <clears throat> I would say about
1: the... The curriculum um, was that we didn't really care well I never did I was in some ways I was a terrible team player I never cared about what the Ontario curriculum was I didn't even know what it was um, because in terms of math from my perspective all roads lead to calculus at least with high school math that's where it's going Mm-hmm. And so whether it was myself and a few other teachers, we knew where we had to get you in, in terms of what you needed to be prepared in order to do that. Now, many of you, well, not everybody, like a whole bunch of you did not have extra math stuff when you came into grade nine. And so, yeah, there were some kids who could do calculus coming into grade nine. They were doing like wanting to do derivatives and integrals like in front of my desk in grade nine. Show offs. And so that's why, at least in, the, in my math class, um, I did things like make people learn to play bridge because I could, have, I could have driven way more curriculum than what I did, but bridge was a foil. It was an alternative to get... Because in the long run, it's all about relationships and how you interact with others. It's not about how much you know. Really, um in terms of you being able to work with people. Um yeah, it's nice to know stuff. But you have to be able to able to interact, interact. And I always thought Bridge was great for that because it's a game. Most people like games. Um it can be as complicated as you want. Um, and I know it wasn't for everyone, but it was just a, it was just something to change the tone of what was going on and because a lot of you were just way, way too serious. At least I, that was my opinion. I, I thought, Oh my God, these students need to lighten up. Um, and so I, that, that's one thing that I did. And it's true that there were some things that we, um, we pushed um, and so really, I think part of that, whether it was myself or some of the other teachers is that we, we wanted you to be challenged. So what we're, we were thinking of kind of doing was that we're turning up the dial and cause we want to increase the academic adversity a little bit, mm-hmm. but we don't want to make it so hard that people snap and p- different people, depending on what's going on are at different places. And so for some people, a little bit of pressure and they're like freaking out and in some ways those are the types of students that we thought oh that wouldn't be good in our program um, you know if they can't handle a bit of pressure or if they get less than 98% and it's a disaster our program is terrible for them think of those stupid algebra quizzes i gave people i once got a negative score yeah ne- negative scores like if people were perfectionists that they would have been like devastated and some of you were devastated anyway but like secretly i can tell you now i never counted them i never told people that but i never counted them because otherwise like people's averages like you wouldn't have gotten into a community college (laughs) let alone like engineering programs (laughs) um but i always thought they were good for you you because i thought oh you need to learn how to read this stuff
0: it was a terrible way to evaluate but I still thought you needed to learn how to handle that situation. So that was done as early as grade nine. You try to uh, inoculate us against adversity as you try to turn the dial up because by the end of the curriculum, we needed to be learning calculus. Some of
1: you would never fail anything. And, you know, people's parents and their teachers want to protect students. And so, you know, you're part of a generation that – Grew up thinking that you should get a trophy for breathing. And I wasn't. Another was Mr. Van Bemmel. Um, and and so sometimes, like I I gave bridge quizzes, people they were a disaster for almost everybody. I never counted those either. But some people, how do they react when they get a three out of ten, when they've always had a ninety-five percent average? There are some people who are going to go, well, shit, I, you know, that didn't feel good. I'm going to do better. Well, you know, that's pretty resilient. There are others who fold like a cheap suitcase and they just implode. Well, they have problems. Oh, yeah. Um, because um, as you go on, and especially for students going into things like engineering, You can be a really hard worker and do, but have disastrous results. And if you implode when money is hemorrhaging out of your parents' account while you're at university, that's not the time to try to work that out. It's better that you go through that experience while in high school when you have a support system around you of students who are going through the same thing. And that, you know, your parents, if you're sad, can make you a sandwich um, and pat you on the back and give you a hug. And um, But if you're in first year and you're in residence, mm, that might not work out so well. And so it wasn't that we wanted you to fail. Um, but if you just didn't get the results that you've always had, um, you needed to go through that,
0: even though it wasn't pleasant You're trying to teach us uh, resilience.
1: I think so, Um, because not everything isn't going to be rosy and fun and good all the time as you go through life. People will have setbacks, and especially you probably know of people who, especially during COVID, they were done school and they they had jobs and then they got laid off. They lost their jobs. And then that's pretty devastating, especially if you're living somewhere and now you've got financial responsibilities and you're paying rent or whatever, and suddenly you have no income. Well, that's super serious. And, and so if you can't handle a bad <laughs> mark on a quiz, how are you going to handle that situation?
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, that's tough.
0: Yeah, I think that definitely taught me a lot. I think resilience is a really important skill, probably more so for, uh, for a lot of students in my cohort that went into um, medicine because that's a, that's a grueling career for, and it's a it's a marathon too. And so I, I'd like to think that a lot of things that you guys taught um, has helped them as well. Could we dial back the time clock? Uh, a little bit sure. into the start of your um, teaching career or the the time leading up into it. Did you, you study biology at U of T, right? You, I, I imagine you didn't always have it in your mind that you would want to spend most of your career as a high school teacher. Oh my God, I never thought of it.
1: Um, at first, um, I was studying molecular biology and molecular genetics. And I worked in research labs ever since I was in second year. Part of it, I had no money, and so um, I was a lab rat where you know I kept the lab running and everything they ever needed, and that was really good. That was a really good experience. I learned a lot doing that. Um, but as time went on, I thought I don't want to have to get a PhD to do anything in this career. Um, and um, one event that certainly cemented it and prevented me from going further was after I got my undergraduate degree. Um, That's when I bought my piano. And it took me a number of years. My parents had to co-sign on a loan. Where I had one paycheck went for rent and the next
0: paycheck went for my piano. And so that happened for a number of years. Was this a grand piano by Steinway or something? Well, it's a German
1: piano that's as good as Steinway's. Wow. Yeah, no, it's like a Lamborghini, it's like it's it's like high end. And so I literally could not afford to be a graduate student. There were profs who wanted me as a graduate student because when I was working in the lab, I was one of the few technicians, lab techs, who would actually present at departmental meetings. And Um, Some of you will have experienced that before. And usually it's some graduate student who's blathering on about their own work. And at least at the time in molecular biology, things took time. And so from one presentation to the next time I would present, there wouldn't be enough time to gather enough stuff. And so there was once where I was there and I, uh, you know, there's all these profs around and postdocs and graduate students. There are about, I don't know, 25, 30 people. And I got up to show my stuff and I said, I'm going to change things. Um, and so I'm going to show you how you can save three to $5,000 a month on enzymes. And all of these profs who were the lead people, that got their interest. They they sat forward. They were like paying attention to what was going on, and and so I I presented experiments where I had uh you know I had positive and negative controls. Um, like I set it up properly, and I you know I said for some circumstances you can do this, and like the amount of money it was pretty phenomenal, and they liked that because. At the time, it, well, and I'm sure it's similar now, it, getting research and grant money, that's hard. And so if people are throwing it away when they don't need to, um, that gets people's a- attention. And so I had profs who said, want to be a graduate student? And I just said to them, you can't afford me. Wow. <laughs> because they could, well, they couldn't. And so um, near the end of my research years that I was doing that, because I did it for about five to six years, Um, I was basically babysitting a postdoctoral student, so someone who had already had their PhD. And I was showing them how to do stuff. And I was showing people how to to do stuff in fourth year. I had a fourth year lab where the person who was running the lab, I was doing all the demonstrations because it was on techniques. They didn't know what they were, but I was doing them already. Um, So at some point, I sort of thought, all I'm doing is showing people how to do stuff. Maybe I should be a teacher because I'll get paid better and have better benefits. And so that was sort of the, the practical impetus that made me end up applying for Teachers College because I thought, well, I'm already teaching anyway. And also, I was tired of going around the lab and walking up to students with the Geiger counter and the stuff called decon Saying, Jacques, you left the phone radioactive again. And he, Jacques would, you know, a post that would be a postdoc or a graduate student. And they, like a small child, would say, Oh, it's not me. And I'm going, You're the only one who's been using P32 this week. And or like saying to Ami like Amelia or somebody, like, you left a neurotoxin on the way scale. Could you please clean it up? Oh, no, it wasn't me. And it's like I just saw you. They were like small children. So I thought, well, if I go into teaching, I won't be around these horribly toxic chemicals. I'll get paid better, and the benefits are better
0: <laughs> So I did. You'll get summers off and you'll have uh, twelve to eighteen year olds to deal with. Uh, kids are kids are tough in my in my opinion. Like how? Yeah. W- w- was that a plus or a minus uh, for for your for your job?
1: Um, it wasn't either really. It was just part of it was like I always when I first started teaching, I wasn't doing much in that that was like tops related. I <clears throat> I taught many many classes over the years that were for students who struggled. In math or science and I taught a fair amount of science in the first several years Um, and I always thought that it came down to that it wasn't that some students are smarter than others because I've actually never thought that it's where people are in terms of whether they're amenable to wanting to learn and for the most part, you and your colleagues were like, you, if we showed something that was more complicated um, and more interesting, most of you ate that up. You were thrilled to get that because you were
0: bored. And you were selecting for that.
1: Well, yeah. Um, but at the, at the same time, the, again, like that thing with the pressure, there were times where we taught things that were hard. And like, I remember in grade, when, like in grade nine math, teaching logarithms. I would say probably half of your colleagues by the end of the course didn't have a clue what a logarithm really was. They might be sort of somewhat functional, um, but that's the experience any student has because it's so ridiculously abstract. Um, and for some of them, it was the first time They had seen something that they didn't get immediately. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of thing in terms of building up resilience. And how do you respond when you get something like that? Um, Anyway, um, I'm losing my train of thought. So ask another question or or fill that one in again. What am I looking for?
0: We, we were talking about your your career, how you got into teaching, uh, applied to teaching school. Um, so you went through. Is it was it a two year program back then as well?
1: No, it was a one year program, and I didn't get in the first time. Oh, um, because it was really hard to get into a teacher's program. And then the second time I didn't get in, and I appealed, and then they let me in. And then when I got to into the actual thing that was at OISE, um or for U of T for their teaching program. I remember I went into the, the, the first class that was for the people who were going to get math credentials. And I looked around the room and I literally said to myself, who let these bozos in? Cause I thought, Oh my God, most of these people are going to be absolutely terrible. What made um, you say that? Th- um, instinct. Because it's all about, as I said, it's all about, can you generate a relationship with students in a way? Um, And a lot of them, I thought, they're not going to be able to relate to kids. A lot of them, I didn't even think they liked them. Um, And they might be smart, but that's nothing. Um, And um, I think I was right about that. There were some people in that year who I thought, oh, they'll be good. And there's a bunch of others who I thought they'll be terrible. And without giving any names, some of those people I encountered over my career, and they were terrible, you know, they became teachers and they were awful at it, and which was ter- <laughs> really too bad <laughs> because I don't think they liked doing it, but the teaching career provides a steady income. And it's fairly secure. Um, and they stuck with it because they just felt like they had no other options. And I just thought that was really sad.
0: Yeah, that is that is unfortunate because then they're also, uh, I guess, responsible for the next generation. And there might have been someone else. One who...
1: person I remember who was in the same year that I went to Teachers College was Mr. Hellman.
0: And I knew he'd be okay. Ah. Mr. Hillman, I didn't have him, but he was—I uh, quite liked him.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, he's a good guy.
0: I quite liked him. So, how did the TOPS come about? You—you uh, you went through the one-year program. Um, teaching Well, TOPS
1: started before I started teaching. It—it it first came into existence in around 1987, 1988, and at that time, we were still like East York, like we had all these different. Uh, Boards of education before it was one before big giant thing that where we all got amalgamated from the, during the Mike Harris years, um, and so East York was the small um, borough that had like three and a half secondary schools. There was East York us. Um, there was a adult ed thing. Maybe maybe that was it. Oh, Leeside. Leaside was the other. One. And like any city, people would ebb and flow from one area to another. And our school was actually, at one point, part of the North York Board of Education, but then East York bought it. Anyway, um, so in the 80s, school enrollment was declining. People from Valley Park were electing to go elsewhere to go to high school, and so at one point, it's my understanding, our, our like Mark Garneau, which was called overly secondary, was under threat of being closed because of declining enrollment. That's ironic. Now most of you, yeah, you would never know that because for a lot of you, we were way over capacity for most of for most of your high school, mm-hmm. and
0: was Thompson' an initiative to try to draw more. Yeah, people so in-
1: there were people who wanted to save the school so they changed the name of the school to mark arnold they put in this big that the big tech room and at the time they filled it with all this new technology for the time which will be a surprise for you people because by the time you were around it was like it was like dinosaurs ancient it was terrible it's like um but they put in this new technology changed the name, and then they started the TOPS program as a way to try to lure people to the school to increase the numbers.
0: Ah, so this was a school board initiative.
1: It was. And so initially they let in about 30 students. There was one cohort, one class. Um, and even at the time, it was never that they were coming, they were not local students. There were lots of they were f- from elsewhere. When I first started teaching in 1994, there were students coming from Pickering in, who were in the TOPS program. Wow. Um, so it was never a truly local program. Now, when I came on the scene, um, TOPS, I thought, was in decline. There would be...
0: Um, Which is when? When did you come in the scene?
1: I, you I really started in like 96. I started teaching some classes in 97, I think, and I became head of the program in 99. I think that's right. Um, But like students, like here you have a class of, say, 30 students coming in in grade 9. By the end of grade 9, a few of them left. And then at the end of grade 10, it used to be in grade 10, there were three tops classes out of eight. And at the end of grade 10, you would have seven or eight others leave because it just wasn't meeting their needs, Hmm. whether it's social, academic, whatever. I think people were sort of saying, why would I come all this way and for whatever reason feel that they weren't getting anything out of it? Now, around that time was also when they were going to get rid of the OAC year, which was the fifth year of high school. And so there was... When I took over, I think that was the year of the double cohort. And so one thing we had to decide to do Mm. was it used to be that you would take tops courses over four years, and then with OAC, you'd be in with everybody else in the building and just get whatever, your marks, and then go off to university. We had to decide whether or not to keep it as a four-year program, or turned it into a three-year program and grade 12 is just grade 12. And we elected to keep it as a four-year program. And that's when we increased the number of courses that were part of the TOPS experience. Now, what we did with that is that I looked at what several years of past graduates had been taking. And so most people, like 95% of the people, took two of three sciences when they were in their OAC year. So that's why you had the requirement of having two of three sciences when you were in grade 12. Mm -hmm. Most of you were doing that anyway, so it really wasn't anything different. You all had to take English and geography and history in terms of part of the requirements to get your, your diploma. Well, we just turned those into TOPS courses so that those teachers could beef it up if they wanted to, or make it a bit more sophisticated, um, and whatever. And so that's why um, it changed quite dramatically. And after we did that, the, the rate of students leaving the program plummeted. Now, that's not to say that students don't leave. But that's where we always wanted our admissions process, again, to try to find students that we thought where the program was a good fit for them. Again, there were lots of students we could have let in who uh, they did spectacularly on the, on the exams. They, you know, they, they were well ahead in the curriculum, but that, that doesn't mean the program would be good for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so occasionally, and, and, and I think I've said this before, when students come in, and if they do have some academic adversity, how do they respond? <clears throat> Occasionally, we have someone. We would have someone who comes in who does sort of. They can't handle it, and it's not that they're not smart enough. But you know, who knows what's going on at home? Who knows what sorts of concerns and issues that they have? Um, but all of that, that bubbling cauldron of stuff together, it's too much. And occasionally, some students would need to leave. And I never kicked anybody out. There were times I wanted to bang some heads against sharp objects. (laughs) I'll admit that. Um, But um, we never kicked anybody. And there were times where we modified people's course load so that they could maybe handle it. So there were some students who, you know, they couldn't take two sciences in grade 12. Well, okay, we let them take one, even though, like, if we thought it was really in their best interest. Um, Now, if students said, oh, I don't want to take physics, physics is hard, you know, that's not a very good reason, they have no clue what they're talking about. Um, But uh, after we had the double cohort and went to the four-year program and our admissions, what we were looking at was going into way more detail, we had less attrition, for sure. And again, I think that was like, oh, then we're kind of doing it right. Um, And I always thought if if you people didn't like it, you wouldn't do those stupid commutes that so many of you did every day. I wouldn't have done them, but a lot of you people did. And again, I think for the most part, if you went home and told your parents and screamed and yelled that you don't want to go there anymore, at some point they'd cave. They would give in because who wants to listen to that? Too much effort. And... But it didn't happen that much, um, and I thought that was a good thing.
0: So, so you were talking about the the tops experience and how uh, it. There was a market change when, uh, when you had to eliminate the fifth year of high school. Um, how 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 else did the tops experience evolve through the years? What was it like um, through the late eighties, early nineties? Um, I guess, before you joined and what were the goals Uh, when you It was less
1: academic. It was less... It was... I... They had some things that looked good. So, like, there there are times where they went down to Florida to see a space shuttle launch. Wow. Sort of cool, except you're many kilometers away and you have a 10-second experience. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I suppose it's nice. But they had stuff that it was just glamour. Um, and so it didn't really have substance to it. So after we went to the four year program, that's when myself and Mr. Van Bemmel, and there's uh, Michael Hussey, um, Miss Woods came around, uh, Miss Chan. We all sort of thought let's just make it a bit more academic. And we did. And that again, I think that was part of why we had such less attrition. Because people were then happy. They were challenged. Um, And so then we started introducing more experiences. So it used to be that really the only thing that ever happened was the Pinecrest strip in grade nine. That was it. Well, you know, Mr. Van Bemmel started the Algonquin thing for the grade tens because before there was some lame, ridiculous thing that they used to do that, again, it looked good. You could get good publicity out of it, but it was meaningless. And so he introduced Algonquin for the grade tens.
0: It seems like there were a lot of, a lot of, it sounds like publicity stunts. Like who, who was the public? Who, who were you trying to appeal to?
1: Well, we weren't trying to appeal. We didn't care in terms of myself and Henry and my, Michael Huss. We didn't care about that so much. Um, but the people at the East York board office who, when they started the program, they were into things that look good. Um, and so, because then people can show up for photo ops. I'm very cynical about all of this stuff because it's the stuff in education I hate. Mm-hmm. Um and we didn't care about that. And so, um, like the, the the Algonquin thing happened, then we had students who were taking calculus in grade eleven. That was a new thing because they'd had the two years of math in grade ten. Oh, true. And at the end of the first semester of grade eleven, we sort of noticed that a lot, a lot of you looked like you had been beat up. Like you, you're kind of stressed. It was tough. Like you know that the you were taking like not just science but you had had a full course in physics or whatever it may have been, um, and so you were kind of exhausted.
0: When you had a and vacation. so
1: that's why when we that's when we thought about oh the winter experience the like the winter pine grass, or before we used to go to a place called Wanakeda. Mm. and again it was just a way to get you to not think about school and to decompress and get the cobwebs out of your head so that you could get, start on second semester relatively fresh. Like I always thought that Quincy building was perfect because all people did was move snow from one place to another. If you want, you can make a, references to when Nelson Mandela was on Robben Island. They would carry rocks from one place to another, just back and forth, and that was their day
0: yep yep and people now pay gym memberships
1: yeah i wanted you to move snow until you were all so physically exhausted that blinking was painful (laughs) because then you'd sleep like the dead. and well when you're doing all that you can't be thinking about oh what i got on my exam or like oh what am i going to do for university applications i just wanted people exhausted and they had fun. A lot of people had never did things like tobogganing or cross-country skiing.
0: Yeah. By the time uh, we went, I think uh, global warming had taken its toll, and it was too warm for us to actually sleep in the quinzees that we had built. But it was a it was a cool experience. Um, I almost forgot about that one when I think about the the repertoire of top strips that that we go on.
1: And then, um. Early on when I was the head, um, we thought about something for the grade 12s. And initially we were in, going to go to New York City, but then nine, uh, like the 9-11 event in mm-hmm. New York City and the bombing of the Twin Towers happened. And so then you know everything was canceled, couldn't plan anything. And it took us a couple of years before we were actually allowed to go on another trip and we went to New York City, and I just remember that the students who went, and this was their doing, the, all the red tape for us to go and get permission and all this other stuff, and the board was terrified, you know, that we'd be killed by terrorists and stuff. Like, it just, it's a, you know, it's ridiculous. But the, the students, somewhere they found this rope that was, at least part of it was used for, like, tug-of-war, so it was really thick
0: rope. Mm-hmm. Oh, literal rope! I thought you were speaking very yeah, figuratively. no, literal,
1: no, literal rope. They took that, and when they took group photos, it showed them holding onto the rope, just like how kindergarten kids would do it. You know, when little kids go on trips, and they have to
0: hold onto the rope. ah, that's cute.
1: So, um, I remember sending pictures of that to the superintendent, <laughs> um, which you know was probably not the wisest thing to do, but it was like. <laughs> they're doing so Um, and so like those things in like there were years that we took kids to to the opera or i made them go to the sing-along messiah one year um those are just things that as teachers they were things that we liked like it's us mm -hmm. and so of course everyone thinks well if i enjoy this so will others but then we get to impose that on on you (laughs) As as youngsters, I'm, I'm going so, to admit that's... there
0: wasn't a single Stratford trip where I stayed awake for the entire show. I, I don't think there was a single show where I I, I didn't fall asleep. Well,
1: there wasn't a single single Stratford trip that I went. What? I never I never went to Stratford ever, ever ever ever, and partly because they were going to go see musicals, and I would rather go to the dentist. <laughs> i hate musicals and so i just wouldn't go and so there was one thing that started happening where your colleagues started getting these crazy ideas that they that they had to go to harvard or princeton and so they started all the, the u.s applications so when you guys would go to stratford i would start letters um, uh, so it was great because i just hid in the src And did stuff that I was going to have to do that was stressing me out That because writing is, I find, a challenging task. And I I would just get that rolling because also the fall was the really busy time. Because then when U.S. applications are happening, that's also when our admissions process is coming. And then we have to have TOPS night. um, And then we have to have the TOPS exam. All of that happens within a month. And I'm, I'm amazed that I survived. And so when you guys went to Stratford, it was an incredible gift for me. And I didn't have to sit through a musical because I hate them.
0: Sounds like a win-win. It was. So uh, scrolling back in time a little bit again, uh, what made you want to take up these responsibilities? Uh, You said that you started, Tops was started in the late 80s. You started teaching in the late '90s, and then you took over as the curriculum curriculum leader. What, like, you you could have just continued um, with your teaching career, do your uh, forty hours a week or and plus marking, and then collect your salary and 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 pension. And, Doesn't you know, that sound a bit dull?
1: That sounds a bit dull. Um, and so. The year that I applied for the headship, I had only been teaching for about five years because I started in 94. Um, part of it was that I just sort of thought, and, and I had a conversation with Henry Van Bemmel about applying, and it was like, you know, he said to me, you know, you do this, we can shape it the way we want. And that was appealing because I've never been very good about doing what people want me to do. like it? I, I've just never been good at that. And so we did. So when I applied and they took me as the head, um, I that's where we could really change it the way we wanted it to be. And I've always thought that in some respects, things got changed in a way that we thought we as adults would have benefited to have had these experiences if we were a student. Um, Because I know when I was a high school student, I never knew how to work. I never knew how to study. I never studied. I studied two and a half hours for my grade 13 calculus exam i studied three hours for physics that was the longest time i'd ever studied in my
0: life that's how long i studied each week for your quizzes
1: well i never studied for quizzes i walked in and i was terrible i had no idea how to work which was a horrible lesson to learn um and so and like these other things um I've always sort of thought that none of you are going to remember what was going on in my calculus or algebra class. But I think most of you remember Pinecrest. I think a lot of you remember Algonquin. Um, I think a lot of you remember your grade 12 trip. Um, Those things are, in some ways, that will stay with you, even though you may not remember the details.
0: When we have gatherings these days with, I mean, there's a lot of people from the periphery now, but it seems like most of the gatherings that I have are with, um, tops kids and they'll have, you know, uh, no, no wives and fiancés yet, but mostly girlfriends and boyfriends and plus ones. And, and they'll just have to sit through us talking about Pinecrest.
1: It wasn't long ago that I ran into some students. They just happened to be around that, uh, I, I met their babies. Damn. <laughs> so it, it's happening.
0: It is happening, it, and it's a it's a little bit scary. Uh, I think, um, you know, it's it's part of life, and I think eventually I'll want that for myself. But I also want uh, this pandemic to be over and to be able to do my round the world trip and get that on my system, and then I'll start thinking about the white pig offense and <laughs> the the whole nine that my immigrant parents wanted me to have by my late 20s.
1: They mean well. But that's the sort of thing that people need to figure out what they want um, in terms of not what their parents want. Like, people's parents mean well. They really do. But um, you guys have to live your own lives. And so it's so easy. I, and I understand where parents would want you to become an engineer or become a doctor because you'll be able to get a secure job. You'll get paid well. You'll be able to look after yourselves and and, and families and the like. And, and you'll have a security that they may not have ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can understand why they want that, but it doesn't mean that you have to live that. And some of you, you have to go do other shit. You need to do other stuff and Find something that turns your crank because then whatever you're doing, if you really love it, it's not a job. It's, and that's the one thing I found with teaching. Like teaching is a riot. I hated marking. I hated anything edubabble related. I hated staff meetings. Um, professional development. Oh my God. It was just a waste of time forever. And, And for me, um, I always thought the best indicator was after you guys graduate and you go off to university, most of you would come back in December to visit, which I always thought was weird because when I graduated, I never wanted to go into that building again. You'd come back and visit, and there were times where things were really tough for a lot of you. But you're in first year, you come back in December there was this effervescence and this confidence that you that we could see on on your faces. Because I think a lot of you, like coming into grade nine, going into first year, it's pretty challenging. You're moving away from home. You're going to be in residence with people that you may or may not know. You know, you find out other people's habits. You want to stab them in the face because they don't clean up the kitchen or the they leave stuff in the bathroom. It's disgusting. Um, uh, but you would come back, and while you're going through all of that and learning those processes, you didn't have to worry about what was going on in your calculus class that much because you were, like, way more prepared than most people. And, and the same thing with physics. And I think probably the same thing with chemistry. And so academically, it was a bit easier when you're learning how to use the laundry
0: machine. I'm seeing it now. I'm seeing how, you know, this, uh, what what did you call it? The turning up the resilience dial slowly, but not too quickly. I I can see how that, that can inoculate against a a lot of, I guess, stressors that would come in in first year because you're you're away from home for the first time. Um, You got to learn how to do laundry. You got to learn how to feed yourself. And for, for once, your mom is not folding your clothes. And also you have to, you know, go, go along with school. And if it's a very tough program, um, then you I'm surprised a whole bunch of you weren't hospitalized
1: because you ate too many ramen noodles.
0: You were surprised or you weren't surprised?
1: Oh no, I am surprised. You are surprised. (laughs) The amount of salt intake that many of you and your colleagues probably had is like, it's, it's a good thing that your liver is. Oh yeah,
0: I, I heard um, folklore at U of T that there was one kid that got uh, hospitalized, um, and the doctors couldn't fix it, figure out what it was, and someone said that's that's scurvy. I've never seen it in real life, but that's. Uh, <laughs> that's oh my god! It's like textbook scurvy. Hmm.
1: Feed him an orange; he'll be good. Send him on his way. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you seem like quite the rebel uh, when it comes to dealing with the board and. And, and your attitude towards uh, development days was that was that difficult uh, in in your career? Did you feel like you were constantly butting heads? I mean, I feel like I know the answer because
1: <laughs> yes, and and but that's where being around other like-minded teachers like Henry and Michael Hussey and and supportive people like Cheryl and Angela, um, that's what keeps you going because I you know. Over all the years that I was a teacher, I rarely, really had issues with students. There are a few students who, you know, I wanted to throttle, um, but not that often. I never had issues with people's parents. So, like, you hear these stories about people, you know, teachers and parents being the enemy. I never had that. I never thought that at all. The only time I ever had difficulty was working with other teachers. Hmm. That was it, and and that's where when we were sort of isolated in our little tops program, and we were teaching those things, it was a safe haven because we didn't have to worry about the curriculum. You guys did fine when you wrote common exams with people, um, and we could teach what we want, we could do what we want, and most people liked it. I think they, you know, they kept coming to school every day, mm-hmm. and so. That again, when you guys would come back in December from first year, I would always sort of ask, Are we doing it right? Like, what can we do better? And most of the time, it was like, You know, we we're really pre- prepared for our coursework. You guys had to learn how to work. Um, like, some of you never had to. And you guys, a bunch of you had to really work in high school. And I think that's, you know, it's not fun and it's not easy. But I I think that saves a lot of your bacon in that, you know, you hear about the number of people who drop out of first year or whatever. Think about it. They were all academically successful to be able to get there. How is it that they go from being students who are academically successful to failures by the end of the first semester? It's because they're not prepared and they don't know how to work. And... I would like to think, for the most part, you and your colleagues were sort of inoculated a bit. Now, some of you may have party too much, um, drank too much beer, even though you shouldn't do that because you're underage, um, like, or played too many video games, I don't know. Um, but for the most part, we didn't hear about that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think... Um crashing and burning amongst top kids in undergrad was uh, more of an exception rather than the, the norm. And so if, if that was the goal, um, which seems like it was, then you guys did a wonderful job. Uh, could, could we speak to what happened in the 2010s, or at least what I experienced in uh, 2011, just before starting 11th grade? what 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 beef did the board have with the tops program
1: i'm um, it's hard for me to remember um events from any given year um, at one point and i don't know so this probably would have been in that time frame we were having say 550 people apply to get into the tops program we were turning down students who we thought They could benefit from this experience, um, but we don't have room. Our school was at, at one point, we were at 174% capacity. Our school was designed for 1,422 students. And we were like, at, at one point, we were around 2,100. We had our field filled up with portables. And so myself, Mr. Van Bemmel, Michael Hussey at the time as well, and some other teachers, we thought, we should grow the program. We should make it bigger because we could have more people come through, and people clearly want to. And at the same time, it was like, well, our school's way over capacity. They should move us. Move us to a school that is at risk of being closed. Let us let in more people. Let us work with the union in terms of how to staff it because union rules make it complicated. And so let us grow. And I thought this was a great idea. But then it was like,
0: um, that's when the knives really came out. You guys wanted to rinse and repeat uh, the rejuvenation of overly.
1: Yeah. Well, part of it is also, even at that time, I was thinking, okay, at some point, Henry and I are going to retire. Who comes next? How, because generally in education, there's no secession planning whatsoever, none. And we thought, okay, if we had a bigger, because even in tops with a double cohort, that's 42 courses, that's seven teachers in total. Mm -hmm. It's not large enough. We need a bigger pool of teachers who are of like mind so that when I'm too long in the tooth, or I get hit by a bus or something, that someone else, there will be a pool of people to choose to come in afterwards. And we thought if we grow the program, we'll be able to get more teachers. At the same time, a lot of people were coming from Markham or from York Region. They all came in with their grant money, their $10,000 grant money. That creates jobs, um, not just teaching jobs, but peripheral things, secretarial staff, custodial staff. It saves a building. It alleviates the pressure of Mark Garno being overcrowded. And our program was never a community program anyway. It wasn't filled with Valley Park kids. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Ever. Even when I started. And I taught my first T.O.P.S. class, which I think was in 97. 1997. They weren't from Valley Park. So since we're not a local program, it doesn't matter where we are. So I actually thought when I was looking at all sorts of data and everything, I thought, put us up at George Vanier, which is up in the peanut or whatever it is. You know, it's not like it's York Mills where it's like fancy houses everywhere. It's, you know, disadvantaged neighborhood. That school was at 50% capacity. It's close um, to the Fairview Mall, which is a direct route for the Viva or whatever the transit system oh, is. Oh man, from,
0: that would have cut my commute down by more than half.
1: <laughs> so it also would then if because there was nothing in York region for kids who wanted specialty anything. I thought, Oh my God, this is perfect. But then, Oh my, their teachers. I don't know how they make it from day to day because, you know, it goes from daytime to nighttime. That's too stressful. Too much change. Um, And boy, do people hate change. And teachers are as bad as anybody else. And the people at the board started coming out of the woodwork when they never had anything to do with the program. They never did anything ever except show up for photo ops. The local parent community, even though it's not a local program, wanted the TOPS kit program to stay. And I thought, well, all we're doing is preventing them. Like, there'd be times where the local kids aren't having science in a science lab because we're overcrowded. Um, now, I would fight that you guys would get a lab. And I'd be saying, look, they're doing these ridiculous commutes. We're offering this. We have to deliver because that's what we've promised to do. So I would fight that you guys would get science labs. But that means other kids aren't. Um <coughs> And a a weird thing that is counterintuitive is that I actually thought more local kids would get into the program if we moved. Because one thing that we saw over the years was that kids who did get in from Valley Park were torn in two different directions as a top student. All their buddies from grade eight Mm. who don't get in are in the building, mm-hmm. trying to have them come in one direction. The tops cohort kids are having their own experience, and and so people are being torn apart in terms of what's what. And they suffered, Valley Park kids, from that more than anybody else. And I so I actually thought, oh, I'll well, move us. It'll it'll be better for them. Um, and uh, but the the board office and there like there were people who were directors of education who had been long retired came out and the program that we that you experienced was absolutely nothing like what they started in 1987. The one that went from 87 in in into the mid-90s was dying. And when when the double cohort happened and they got rid of the 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 OAC year and we changed what courses you guys took. It just blossomed, and then it became this monster where, again, we would have like 550 people applying for 55 spots. It was awful. And so we thought, let us grow. And the board didn't want it. And so they just wouldn't let it happen, which is too bad. Um, but after that, I, that was really hard on a bunch of us. It was really hard.
0: Um, I must have felt disenchanted that. uh... Oh, for sure.
1: And so I certainly had a different point of view of, it's not that this will come across wrong. It's not that I didn't care, but I had to let go of caring because we had put so much into it in terms of what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And we were prepared to do all the work to make it happen. But afterwards it was just like, the, again they'll show up for the photo ops they used to send anytime there would be people from another country who would come to the the tdsb they always came to talk to us always like we'd have foreign delegations every year visiting
0: to learn um, about the program
1: yeah because it was such a success and the and from the we were the shining star in the, the TDSB, and, and again, beforehand, um, bef- when it was more diverse racially, we were more diverse racially and economically than anywhere in the board. We were exactly what public education was supposed to do. We had students who came in, like who, whose parents could probably afford to put them into residency, At upper canada college at 45 grand a year and think nothing of it we had other students who came in who you know without giving names there was one student who used to lie because he looked so young to get child's tickets for the ttc because his mom was on welfare and they had no money and they but you would never know that like over all the years of teaching i never saw weird economic cliques within tops. Now, maybe there were, and I was just too stupid, and I didn't see it. But I never experienced that. Um, And so it was disappointing that the board was just too afraid to let us give it a shot, because we had already demonstrated that we could make it work. And it would be different if we had more students come in. We knew that. But... Another thing is that we could have had more T.O.P.S. classes in different areas that would be electives, Um, and we were just, our heart was in it, and so when the board said no, then we lost a bit of that.
0: that. That was an inflection point in your attitude. Yes. Was it also an inflection point for the program, you feel?
1: Um, well, part of it was that that took a couple of years for all of that stuff to sort of iron itself. Out. Um, well, if they weren't going to let us do anything like the we were concerned about things like secession, and, um, and the board wasn't. And so at some point you've been swimming upstream for years and years and years and they don't care. And so you just give up on, on that because we had no power. We couldn't make it happen anymore. And so it's just like, okay. like And so people still taught their classes and they were still engaged in doing that. Um, that was, you know, but, you know, I did something unusual by giving up my headship before I retired. I gave it up so that they could hire somebody who when they came in, that whether they wanted... Support from me or not, I would be there to help them. And keep the training wheels. I close. really met, yeah. And so I did that, and you know the the person who came in after me worked really hard, and it practically killed her. Um, and then she was there for one year, and then I don't think she elected to apply again. And I really liked her. She was good, um, and I thought she was a good person. I thought, in terms of a good fit for the program. But then there was no support really from the from the school and the board, um, and like and there, like it was tricky. Because I, I, as I said, the fall is super busy. It was super busy for me, and um, I. I was perfectly prepared if this if my successor wanted to go in different directions. That's their prerogative. I'm okay with that. I would support that because new blood is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was some stuff. It's like, oh, I hope this person comes to see me soon because I know what's coming down the pipe. It's like they should be on this. Like it's the Tuesday after Pinecrest. This is what should happen. This or needs to happen really soon. It's not happening, and like I'm not going to go and tell them what their job is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like, oh, they're, like all the university application things. It's like, um, you'll need to get started on this.
0: Um, you didn't type up a tops head uh, handbook for them.
1: N- no, I've never been very good at that. Um, but I, if you guys, it may have been after you. I used to have. I had these giant calendars made up that were laminated and I would um, stick them onto the um, filing cabinets and people would come in and write down like Pinecrest, Winter Pinecrest, exams. Oh yeah, Th- it was on um, the SRC, right? PD days. Um, I would put things on there because I can't remember it all. So like on the Monday, the first Monday of every month, I would um, deposit TOPS enrichment checks um, because you know some families wanted to give post data checks. And so I... I would need to remember that. So I had it up on the wall and like, I still had those and I gave them, like I said, here's, here's sort of what last year looked like. And, uh, um, it was just, it was, it was a very challenging time. Um, and, but I, like for me, after I was done, it's like, it's not my job. I'm not going to, I'm not going to jump in and do everything. Cause that's not my job. And I can't save everybody. And so it, it. this is the board's doing. It was just a very awkward time. And then, you know, at the end of that year is when COVID started.
0: Mm-hmm. D- did that deal? W- what is the state of tops now? I don't even know. I, I'm not connected to anybody who's uh, still in You it. see, neither
1: am I. Oh. Neither am I. So I'm not, because
0: you don't have a tops hotline where the current head just picks up the phone and you're, you're there and they can ask you questions. No.
1: Well, if they wanted to, I would be happy to talk to them. Um, But I don't, um, that whole thing with the board that took a lot out of us. Mm. And so I'm happy not living in the stress of being in the TDSB. So I try not to think about it because I can't control it. So I'm going to do stuff. I like to do.
0: And I'm going to cut this one there at one and a half hours, one Otradian cycle. It's already the longest podcast I've released yet, and there's going to be at least a part two. We covered a lot in this episode. We walked through what the TOSS program is, what its philosophy was, and we went through McMaster's history with the program from teaching college through taking over headship in 1997, to stepping down in 2019, to the pandemic hitting and putting tops into uncharted waters. Part two is going to talk about private versus public education, Michael's ideas on pedagogy and teaching systems at large, and what else we talk about is up to you. I'm releasing this episode a little bit prematurely typically a multi-part podcasts are fully recorded before they're split up and published in chunks but the second part of the part 2 has actually not been recorded so if you have any ideas on what we should talk about in part 2 in addition to me picking Michael's brain on education philosophy then hit me up on Instagram it's uh, pardon my passion podcast my personal is pompous pedro and if you have me on facebook messenger you can shoot me a message there whatever just uh, reach out it's been a while so look out for part two and until then stay safe and we'll talk later bye